Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight on the 77th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, marked today on this International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's a day that honors the millions of Jewish victims of Nazism and one of the world's worst genocides, a day that comes as anti-Semitic incidents rise during the pandemic and as memories of the atrocities fade, and not just because of time, but because of the normalization of extremism and the boost that the previous president gave to the far, far right. Remember the Nazis who chanted, Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville, being labeled as some of the good people on both sides? And more recently, a deliberate national campaign of erasure and book banning that has now succeeded in banning a vital book about the Holocaust from classrooms. That book is Mouse, a graphic novel by American cartoonist Art Spiegelman. A Tennessee school board has voted unanimously to remove it from the eighth grade curriculum after officials objected to instances of curse words and an image of a nude woman. Mouse is the first and to date the only graphic novel to win a Pulitzer Prize, and it has played an essential role in helping young people understand the Holocaust through the lens of personal narrative. The story follows a Jewish survivor of Hitler's Europe and his cartoonist son, who tries to come to terms with his father's story and with history itself. As you can see here, Jews are depicted as mice, and Nazi Germans, who, we should note, also had a history of banning and burning books, are depicted as cats. The vote to ban it, which the author of Mouse rightly called Orwellian, was first reported by the Tennessee Holler. It is the latest example of the radical uptick in howls from the right to ban any book that addresses, or frankly even acknowledges, the existence of race, racial privilege, sexuality, or difficult content about America's past. This isn't about so-called critical race theory, folks. This is about removing anything that makes white Americans or Europeans feel bad or allows students to understand history in context. That's why pretty much everything is on the chopping block these days. Reported recently in Mississippi, a mayor threatening to withhold library funding until LGBTQ books are purged. Proposed legislation that sets a $10,000 bounty to be collected for every day a challenged book remains on library shelves. And in the St. Louis area, the banning of one of the most crucial portraits on the nuances of racism, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We make all these handmaid's tale comparisons, likening Texas to Gilead, when we warn of dystopia, not as sci-fi, but as an American reality, This isn't some liberal hyperbole, some left-wing freakout, as the Republicans want you to believe. This is real, and it's happening. Not at some later time or in the hazy, distant future. It's happening now. Book purging, the scrubbing of history, censoring and penalizing educators, like this teacher who was fired for discussing white privilege. And now the banning of mouse. It sets our kids up for failure because it robs them of not only knowledge, but the ability to participate in critical thinking and debate, and also empathy. But then we got to wondering, maybe that's the point. 
Joining me now is Art Spiegelman, Pulitzer Prize-winning artist, illustrator, and author. And Jeremy and Jerry Kraft, Newbery Medal-winning illustrator and author of New Kid, a graphic novel pulled by a Texas school district after a white parent complained that it promoted critical race theory and Marxism. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Uh, Mr. Spiegelman, I want to start with you. Your book, and I have a copy of it here, um, is is a brilliant way to discuss and let young people confront and understand the Holocaust in, in a format that is popular with young people, graphic novel format. What do you make of these criticisms, uh, the banning of your book based on it depicting nudity? And let's be clear, we're talking about nude mice, mice, mice <laughs> being nude. It's not right? even that. It's work. Please, please tell us. Because uh, I, I think the, the thing that's so confusing about this is that the school board is stupid, but I don't know that they're Nazis. I just know that they're stupid, the people that banned this. And the reason they were banning the, the, the mouse picture that was upsetting to them is a small panel in an inset story inside mouse of my mother who had just committed suicide by slashing her wrists in a bathtub and she's just discovered and I'm just brought into this home. And so there's a, when they, when the guests at, or at the Shiva, the sitting, when the people come by for this thing to happen and leave me alone, the thoughts that are going into, uh, through my head are post-menstrual, um, depression, um, Hitler did it, uh, um, mommy with a picture of me very small in a concentration camp outfit cuddled up with her in bed as a little kid and then her cutting her wrists and the words bitch underneath so that was the word that they that was one of the seven words evidently that they chose and it's also mm -hmm. the titillating picture of a <laughs> a totally non -t I don't even know how to describe it it has nothing to do with what would conjure up <gasps> a nude body any more I than um so, so just to, not even to be fair to them, just to be accurate to what they're saying. And I think it's interesting. Um, so they're upset that I wasn't respectful to my mother when she died. It wasn't an accidental word that I just threw in there because they're upset that I used the word bitch as well. Uh, it, it's, um, it was me in the turmoil of the moment after my mother had killed herself, just trying to reach for some thought of what, what's right. just been a punch in the face. The other thing that they were upset about was at the end of the story, the first volume, which is the one you held up. It's actually mm -hmm. a two-volume book. And one of the reasons the first volume remains on sale is because it's been found to be a good uh, teaching tool. Because for people who can't handle the entire uh, weight of the Holocaust at whatever age they find it, this is a way to get the story up to the gates of Auschwitz. I never yeah. made the book to be didactic at all. Anyway, just sorry to hijack you, but the, the yeah. last point here is that um, the other thing they were really upset about was me saying, God damn you, to my father at the moment that I discover that he had burned my mother's diaries that she had reconstructed after the war and wanted me to have. And that was me being angry at a moment where this was what I end up saying a couple panels later, a second kind of murder after she had, after all the murders we had lived through, he had murdered her memory. And what's important is memory. It's important in the yeah. book and it's important in our lives. Today is one of those days where you're supposed to remember according to International Indeed. Holocaust Memorial Day. But I remember this every day anyway. But the book puts memories in order. That's what comics do anyway, because you can always see to the past and the future. And, and so, your, your mom, to be clear, was a, was a Holocaust survivor or the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Yes, is, that, is that accurate? 
Your parents were. And and let me me ask you this question, because, you know, my kids, they watched The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, um, a film, a narrative film about, you know, depicting the Holocaust. And that is about a child dying in the Holocaust. You know, Romeo and Juliet, at the end, there's a suicide, a double suicide at the end. You can go through it. Catcher in the Rye. Young people read in eighth grade in some cases. You know, what do you make of this concerted effort to take away books it's not just yours, but others that deal with the Holocaust. In, in one state, they were saying that if students learn about the Holocaust, they have to hear the other side, as if there's another side. <laughs> uh, yes, I, of course. I mean, I always thought that English, which was one of my favorite subjects way back when I was in school, was about learning how to get inside somebody else's head. That's what it's about. Uh, it's not about being programmed. It's not about being taught. You must be a better person, see, because other, or you must avoid Jews because, or whatever. It's really about climbing into somebody else's head. So I never made this yeah. to teach anyone anything. And it was at a time when there was no such thing as graphic novels. I was doing this blind, and it took yeah. 13 years to find. Jerry Craft, uh, I, I want to bring you into this because your book um, goes into something that's equally uh, attacked here as, and called critical race theory. Your book was wrongly called critical race theory. It's not. But your book is literally about a new kid having to deal with being new in school and being of a different race and how that impacts a child. That seems like something you'd want kids to know about. You'd want kids to understand about empathy. I have a statistic here that shows that, first of all, white students are the minority in public schools right now. They have fallen from 54% to 47% of the public school population in this country. Black students have gone from 17 to 15 percent and Hispanic students have increased from 22 to 27 percent. So we're talking about an increasingly diverse population that's getting even more diverse as you get younger. What do you make of these attempts to essentially blind them to anything about racism and racial privilege and label that critical race theory to scare their parents? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, you know, in New Kid, again, a graphic novel, there's no nudity, there's no cursing. Yet here we are, you know, and it's amazing that there are these parents that want to they they don't want their kids to see the world as it is today. The world has changed a lot. And I think kids by rule are empathetic. You know, they're curious. They want to meet new people. They want to see new things. And I think that's a lot of the parents, you know, if, if you leave the kids alone, because I never get complaints from kids. You know, never, not once have I ever had a kid come up to me and said, oh, your book made me feel bad. I've had kids come in tears saying, you know, oh, I mean, even incidental characters, like a kid a couple of weeks ago said, thank you for Ramon, who's a Latino boy. Thank you for him. I never saw myself in this book before and or in any book. And the same with me with Mouse. Like, I hated to read as a kid. I was a grown man before I even thought that I could read for enjoyment. I could read. Reading was always for information, but I never sat down for enjoyment. And when I sat down, I think Mouse might have been one of the first books that I read on my own as like, well, let me sit down and, you know, just uh, spend the day reading and was blown away by it. So I'm shocked and devastated that we're at this point. I mean, the, what, what made me learn to read, I, put, I brought it right here because this is my favorite author, Toni Morrison. This is what made me love to read. And I read for enjoyment and because it was assigned in class, but I enjoyed it because it was challenging and it was interesting. And we were reading these kinds of, I mean, we read Shakespeare in, you know, seventh, eighth grade. There are murders. They read Hamlet. Like, you know what I mean? like these people seem to be against, you know, and I'll come back to you, Mr. Spiegelman. It seems that they are terrified 
that children will become more empathetic, right? Because it does feel like what they're trying to strip out of children is both knowledge and empathy. Right. It's like the African proverb. Until the... Mr. Spiegelman first and then Mr. Kraft. First Mr. Spiegelman and then Mr. Kraft. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm concerned about the information content that's being withheld uh, because you need to know stuff. That's what you're in school for. And there's a good reason that you need to know stuff. It's a survival thing, you know. And I don't know that uh, it's possible when parents, as uh, Jerry just said, uh, interfere with the learning process. This was meant to be, it's not a book that was just banned. It was part of a curriculum. They said, how can you have this in a curriculum? And when I'm figuring out what does it mean to have one of these books in school? A curriculum is exactly how you want it because you want them to give a context. You want them to give other books that give information about the same subject, read newspaper articles, see movies. And that was exactly how this was supposed to be working. And yeah. obviously, information is too valuable to give to poor kids. Yeah, apparently. Mr. Kraft, sir. Yeah, and the thing is, these are both part of our lives. New Kid is based on my life and of my two sons. So I'm not making this up. Mr. Spiegelman is not making up mouths, but it's like the African proverb, until the lion tells their side of the story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And so far, I guess there's too many lions that are writing their own stories. And now there's legislature to get us to stop. And it's yeah, horrible. It's horrible. And I, and I will say that we, you know, we don't, we're out of time, but there, there are young people who are protesting this themselves because they want to learn. They want to be open to information. They want to question. They want to think. They don't just want to be, you know, sort of drones who go through saying America is the greatest country in the world and there's nothing ever bad that ever happened here. That is insane. That is not education. Grow up, people. Your kids are smarter than you. Uh, thank you, Art Spiegelman. Thank you, Jerry Kraft. You. And love both of your books. Up next on The Readout, with Justice Breyer's retirement now official, the fight to fill his seat on the Supreme Court begins in earnest. And yes, it will get vicious. Also, Trump's fraudulent electors and their role in carrying out the big lie. Will they be held accountable? New Mexico's Attorney General joins me. Plus, another impact of the effort to tear down democracy, the national exodus of election workers facing burnout, new rules and regulations, and threats on their lives. And tonight's absolute worst could float all boats if they wanted to, but instead they're dropping anchor. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman 
ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue, in my view. I made that commitment during the campaign for president, and I will keep that commitment. With the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, President Biden is recommitting to his campaign promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, following the lead of several of his predecessors, like candidate Ronald Reagan in 1980. Now, I'm announcing today that one of the first Supreme Court vacancies in my administration will be filled by the most qualified woman I can possibly find, one who meets the high standards I will demand for all court appointments. It's time for a woman to sit among our highest jurists. Orange Julius Caesar did the same thing when he promised to choose a woman to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But according to the right-wing meltdown, when a Democrat makes the same commitment to name a black woman or any woman of color, remember the Sonia Sotomayor freakout, the nominee suddenly becomes unqualified and just an affirmative action hire. Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute complained that since he's only considering black women, Biden's nominee would have an asterisk attached and later added that Biden was overlooking more qualified candidates in favor of what he called a lesser black woman. Shapiro has since apologized and deleted those tweets, calling the second one inartful. But the dean of the Georgetown Law Center, which recently hired him to oversee its center on the Constitution, said the suggestion that the best nominee could not be a black woman and the demeaning language were appalling and at odds with everything Georgetown Law stands for. For even more disgustingly wild racism, look no further than the right wing echo chamber over at Fox News to exclude certain candidates based solely on race and gender is beyond extremely divisive. Uh, it may even be illegal. Why doesn't Biden strike a real blow for equity and just nominate Bridget Floyd? Who's that? What's George Floyd's sister? She's not a judge or a lawyer or, or whatever. But at this stage, who cares? Clearly, that's not the point anymore. This law stuff. Ooh, so in addition to the storm of hypocritical nonsense, Biden's eventual nominee is clearly going to face. The political battle is already beginning. Appearing alongside Justice Breyer this morning, praising his intellect, legal insight and patriotism, President Biden said he'd announce his decision on a successor within a month. Three names are apparently on the short list. U.S. Circuit Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger and U.S. District Judge J. Michelle Childs. With me now, Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General, who is also a former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer, and Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. Um, thank you all for being here. Let's just put up these, th this list again. Uh, these are all three brilliant women, um, Christina Greer. But, you know, the, the fact that, you know, despite the fact that literally George Herbert Walker Bush deliberately said, I'm picking a black nominee on purpose. And they uh, reportedly at the time in 1991 focused almost exclusively on minority and female candidates because they wanted to make a point and replace the great Thurgood Marshall with someone black. But with the greatest possible irony, <laughs> you know, um, that seems to be fine when Republicans do it. Um, suddenly, each of these women gets really, you know, maligned. Before they even operate, anyone is even nominated. We don't even know what it's going to be. It may not even be a judge. It could be any entirely qualified black woman. Absolutely. I mean, Joy, you say irony. I say embarrassment. Um, I mean, what we have right now is I'm an embarrassment nice. of riches, Sunday. Though, right? Well, OK. OK. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the Democrats, when choosing a black woman specifically, they have a plethora of talented black women who could be in this conversation. And what we what we need to recognize is, is when Ronald Reagan said a woman, 
when Donald Trump said a woman, what they meant was a white woman specifically. But because we use the proxy of white womanhood as just that's who women are and black women are left as, a, as an add on. This is the sort of apoplectic feeling we're getting across the street at Fox News. And so when we when we think about the 115 Supreme Court justices, all of whom, except for six, have been white men. We know that not all of them were chosen on their merits or their talent. They were chosen because they were white and they were male. You and I have been in mm-hmm. meeting after meeting where whenever it comes time to talk about expanding diversity uh, in, an, in an office, in a Supreme Court, in whatever corporate situation you're in or academic situation, now all of a sudden we want to have conversations about qualifications and should we be doing this when the proxy has always been, the baseline has always been white maleness. And so I think... You know, when Joe Biden said in the campaign trail that this is something that he'd look into, there are talented women. Uh, I am just girding my loins thinking about Hmm. uh, the process that they will have to go through, the questions they will have to answer. We saw this with Sonia Sotomayor because not only uh, do we know that these Republican senators are not excited to have another woman on the bench, but they do not want a Hmm. black woman on the bench. Yeah. The good thing, I mean, where I always hmm. try and lean to the light, Joy, is that. These women are talented. They are intellectually superior to the vast majority of their colleagues. uh, And hopefully they will get through the confirmation process um, by showing that they actually have uh, the the wherewithal and the intellectual heft, more so than many of their colleagues uh, on various benches, uh, to get through this process and become the next Supreme Court Justice of the Absolutely. I mean, I'm going through here, you know, uh, John Roberts was a clerk to Justice Rehnquist. He was a attorney, you know, aide to an attorney general. He was White House counsel. You know, they've been solicitors. People have been all sorts of different jobs. Some of these people were, you know, in the George W. Bush administration. You know, Clarence Thomas was at the EEOC. You know, there's nothing inherently sort of magical about white male judges that makes them automatically qualified. Um, There are lots of people from all sorts of walks of life who could be completely qualified to be Supreme Court justices. Let me go to you on this, Neil. You know, uh, on this question of qualifications, I, I want to talk with Amy Coney Barrett just for a second. Because, you know, there was no such question from the right about whether this woman ought to be qualified. It was pretty clear that they wanted her because she was a woman and she was sort of a front for their ability and their determination to get rid of Roe v. Wade. They wanted a female face on that. Um, Linda Greenhouse, who's covered the Supreme Court forever and ever and ever back in 2020, said this of Amy Coney Barrett. Your resume is impressive, as the president emphasized. But if truth be told, it's quite thin for a Supreme Court nominee. I'm hard pressed to think of a Supreme Court nominee in modern times who has brought such limited experience to the job. So these are completely disingenuous BS complaints, are they not, Neil? Well, you know, I think Professor Greer has it right when she says that past presidents have used, including Republican presidents, have used litmus tests. And they have expressly said so. And to me, the more interesting thing is when they don't say anything. Donald Trump, for example, he didn't nominate a single black person to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Not one. Um, so I think that that kind of, you know, it, it is inconsistent and hypocritical to hear Hannity and Tucker and all these people complaining about a race test now when there has been one in the past. And I think what I'm just so celebrating in President Biden is that he said it's time for an African-American woman to be a justice on the Supreme Court. That's something that we should all applaud. I mean, it's been more than 200 years in this country and we haven't had it. And the best part about this, Joy, is that we have great names 
for this slot. Um, you know, Katanji Jackson Brown is being talked about now quite a bit. Um, I've known her for decades. She is smart. She is savvy. Um, and like Chief Justice John Roberts, who replaced, uh, you know, William Rehnquist, uh, she clerked for Justice Breyer. So there's a kind of parallelism there. There's Leandra Kruger, who was my principal deputy solicitor general when I was at the Justice Department. I don't know that I've ever seen a better young lawyer before the Supreme Court arguing before the justices. I mean, this is someone who had incredible poise and the respect of the entire U.S. Supreme Court during each of her 12 arguments. She is just to die for. And so, you know, that's just two people. And so, you know, I think the idea that to say these folks are unqualified, I can't think of something more pathetic, something more stupid, something more device, something more divisive. It's just flatly wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Christina, there's already on, on the side of that, to the side of the idiocy that, that's going to happen on the right, no matter who is nominated. Um, there's also the politics sort of going on now, too. J- uh, Judge Childs has a, a huge sponsor um, and supporter uh, in Jim Clyburn, who's been openly advocating for her and talked about her experience as somebody who's not from an Ivy League school. You know, there's the question of whether or not they should consider somebody who comes from, you know, the legal advocacy world rather than just limiting it to judges. There's all sorts of options. What do you think, uh, you know, just looking outside, looking in, you know, Biden has the opportunity to really shape the court with this decision long term, especially if he picks someone young. Should he be broadening his view about who he's thinking about beyond just sitting just sitting judges? I think, Joy, it's going to have to be both and, because keep in mind, we know that the, you know, the president will, will listen to various colleagues. He'll put a name forward, but he has to also think about the strategy dealing with the, the Senate uh, and who are the members of the Judiciary Committee who will who will help with this process and, and who are the members of the committees that will get this nominee uh, confirmed. I do think we need a lot more diversity, not just racial and ethnic and gender diversity, uh, intellectual diversity. Thus far, Clarence Thomas is one of the only Southern justices that we have. We need we do need other types of representation. uh, Absolutely. But I I think that uh, President Biden has to think about. Uh, some of the senators, um, he's obviously not going to choose someone radical. The the women who are on these these lists, none of them are radical, uh, but they do have different CVs uh, and they do come from different parts of the country. And they have argued various uh, types of cases that will show uh, different strengths, I, I think, as the, as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's keep in mind, we're talking about qualifications. Donald Trump doesn't even speak proper English. He speaks like Palinese. <laughs> you know, he's not qualified. He wouldn't qualify to be president. And they let him pick a whole three justices and put him on the court for life. So, you know, stand down uh, on the right if you guys are going to talk about people who being people who are qualified for jobs because y'all voted for Donald Trump. Uh, Neil Katyal, Christina Greer, thank you both very much. Still ahead, New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas joins me as his office moves forward with an investigation into the fake slate of electors received by Congress. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. 
Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. A federal judge yesterday denied bail to Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the extremist right-wing militia group, the Oath Keepers, who was charged with seditious conspiracy in connection with January 6th. And one of the reasons he was deemed a flight risk, according to that judge, is because of the elaborate escape tunnels he had installed in his backyard. The decision prompted Rhodes' ex-wife to say this on Twitter, quote, folks, if you ever feel tempted to rent a backhoe and dig escape tunnels in the backyard of your rental house, Keep in mind, it may come back to haunt you if you later attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. Excellent advice. She also tweeted some photos of a spider hole that Rhodes had also dug. Now, it's not the elaborate tunnel system that he built in his backyard, but you get the idea. Meanwhile, the 84 Republicans who submitted false documents to overturn the election in several states are finally getting the scrutiny that they deserve. As the Justice Department confirmed this week, their conduct is now under federal investigation. We've been learning that they were all part of a scheme led by the Trump campaign, which directed these Republicans to effectively forge, sign and submit the fake certificates while assuring them it was perfectly legal. And it happened across seven states. That's 84 electoral votes that the Trump campaign needed to steal from Joe Biden. In five of those seven states, they falsely swore that they were duly elected and qualified electors while they knew the actual electors were voting for Joe Biden. But the fake electors in the other two states, Pennsylvania and New Mexico, apparently got cold feet. In each of those states, they included a very specific caveat, language that effectively said their fake certificates should only be considered valid if a court ruled in Trump's favor. Nevertheless, New Mexico's attorney general referred the matter to the Justice Department earlier this month, and he's now got the investigation that he was calling for. And joining me now is New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas. Thank you so much for being here, sir. And I want to ask you about that caveat. Why would putting in, you know, their submission of their electors form saying that we're going to do this on a contingency, that if Trump succeeds in finding enough, you know, you know, massive fraud to overturn the election and judge rules that he was right, then we're the electors. Why, in your view, is that still a crime? And what crime do you believe that that is? Well, thank you for having me, first of all, Joy. It's great to be with you. Um, well, I think that we have to start off that, that law enforcement agencies across this country are engaged in gathering the facts. And that's an important step in this process. But to your question, uh, directly, in order to prove either state or federal fraud, there must be having a, a knowing an intent and an action involved. And so that language could serve to either create a defense or to raise a question as to criminal culpability. But we're early in the face, uh, face right now of gathering facts. And at some point, and I'm glad the DOJ is involved, there needs to be an application of all the state and federal potential crimes that could be uh, applicable here in this case. And what are the potential state crimes that we're talking about here? Well, if there was any type of doctoring of documents, uh, forgery, um, the one that I'm very concerned about and I'm monitoring all of this activity that you're covering is the conspiracy to deploy, to deploy, to deploy an attack 
of the overall electoral system is probably the most dangerous and risky, and that would involve either a federal conspiracy and connecting bad actors in all our respective states. And, and that's I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we know that in the case of John Eastman, who wrote that you know infamous memo that basically outlined how to steal the election, and it involved having this alternate set of electors. A federal judge has now told him speed it up. You know, submit these, produce these documents and pages that have been requested by congressional investigators more quickly. Judge David Carter ordering him to begin reviewing at least 1,500 pages per business day starting on Friday and immediately transfer any unprivileged documents to the House committee. So there is a little bit more activity in terms of Eastman, but his plot necessarily involved having these electors ready to go. Do you believe that seditious conspiracy, which we have now seen charged, at least in the case of the leader of the Oath Keepers, is on the table for what these fake electors did? I believe it is. So if you look at our electoral system, it really is a complex system, but it's simple. It involves voters, poll workers, then certifying who the next president will be. And so that uh, brings all the parties together. But what's interesting about this case, and I can assure you law enforcement is monitoring the production of some of this other activity, uh, because the real question is conspiracy. Were there outside forces trying to alter the respective state outcomes in those respective seven states. That is where these fake electors could be connected uh, to a larger criminal conspiracy. And I think that is the greatest risk. And we, we know that in some cases, elected Republicans um, at the federal level at least were rooting for this conspiracy to succeed, wanted it to succeed. Um, are there, in your view, is, is there an opening here that any elected officials that were in any way a part of this alleged conspiracy, if that is found to be the case, do you think that some elected officials could or should be charged? Well, I like to look at the investigation at this um, early phase that the investigations are not targeting lawful conduct of Americans participating in the electoral process. What we're concerned about is that uh, the will of the people be upheld and that uh, every and any American can request an audit of the electoral system, you can sue in a court of law. And so after the Trump organization exhausted all those remedies, the real question is there was there additional conduct or conspiracy to really subvert or change the actual outcome and the will of the people. And I think that is where law enforcement, both at the state level and now at the federal level, is just starting to gather those facts because that would be illegal conduct that's not recognized under any legal framework in this country. Thank you um, for all of that information and clarification. New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. All right. Tonight's absolute worst tears. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, it is an unprecedented time for American election officials facing threats, intimidation and an avalanche of new laws aimed at making it harder to vote. We'll talk to one of those officials next. We're back after this. Hundreds of election officials across the country have become the targets of a national terror campaign launched by political zealots who believe the former president's lies about the election he lost. These civil servants have been the targets of violent, violent death threats. In some instances, radicalized right-wing vigilantes have even shown up at their homes looking to terrorize their families. Reuters conducted a sweeping investigation into the more than 800 threatening voicemails. Here's just a small sample. You are in on this. Let me tell you what. 
Your days are numbered. When all of you pieces of Katie are executed for treason, what the are your family is going to do living in a world in which they know that their family members were some of the biggest pieces of that ever existed on the planet? We're coming after you and every mother that stole this election with our Second Amendment. You guys will pay in the end, mother because you cheated and lied. You guys f***ing lied and cheated. Wow, in some cases, Reuters was able to uncover the identity of the callers who refused to apologize. In fact, they doubled down. The Department of Justice has launched a law enforcement task force to address the rise in threats against people associated with the electoral process. And last week, they brought their first criminal case against a Texas man accused of threatening election and other government workers in Georgia. A recent Brennan Center survey found that 17 percent of local election officials have been threatened because of their role in the 2020 election. And it's led to a mass exodus of election workers. According to the Nevada Independent, by the 2024 election, more than a third of Nevada's 17 top county, top county election officials will be new. And it should come as no surprise that the MAGA cult and their leader are looking to capitalize on those vacancies, filling them with people sympathetic to their crusade. Joining me now is Deanna Spicula, Washoe County, Nevada, Registrar of Voters. And thank you so much for being here, ma'am. And um, I want to I ask you about your own experience. I, I'm, I'm reading here just in these notes um, by my wonderful producers that you received death threats. You were especially concerned for your poll workers who are on the front lines. They happen to be face to face with voters. Talk about those concerns and how many of your folks have decided to stay on um, for the next election. Um, no, thank you for having me on um, for say that. And this is such an important topic for us. So I'm really glad um, it's getting some attention um, and that people are, are hearing uh, what is happening to election officials across the nation. Uh, for us, um, we've had some definite some death threats um, and some other harassing behavior. And uh, I do have a lot of concern for my staff, uh, for the temporary workers that come in and work in our office. And of course, our poll workers that are out in the field, um, they are coming into contact, uh, you know, with our voters out there. And, and I do um, I do hope that uh, as as we're getting into the 2022 election, um, that that things will start to um, turn around. Um, we have a very strong, positive, um, optimistic view of this year. And we're just hoping, um, you know, we, we've taken precautions and we're um, training our poll workers and our staff on on some uh, you know simple emergency protocols and things like that. So we're we're just really being proactive and um, trying to do our best uh, to make sure that all of our workers are safe. You know, and this is happening at a time when Republicans have decided that the only legitimate way to vote is in person. So you're talking about people who believe the big lie being the ones more likely to be in line to, to show up. They're talking about sending people to watch other voters to essentially intimidate them and bully them. I wonder if, you know, your election staff, your election workers who, you know, in my experience are these are the best citizens. These are people they're not making a lot of money doing this. They just they do it every year. I know where I vote. It's the same people every year, you know, older people in a lot of cases. Are you having trouble getting folks to, to show up and do this? And are they saying to you, I can't do it anymore? That's question one. And question two is, are those wonderful people in your experience being replaced by people who believe in the big lie? So at this time, we have a lot of return poll workers. They are very dedicated um, to bringing democracy to our citizens in our county. Uh, and so far, there's a, there's only been a few that have expressed um 
overriding concern that they they don't want to work um, because they are uh, in fear of what could happen this year. Uh, for the most part, most of them are um, are ready and willing to to serve and very eager to do so this year. Um, you know, we're just in the early yeah. parts of recruitment, um, so we're we're definitely working on um, filling in the gaps of where we do need poll workers. Um, but you know, again, a very strong showing for our um, our veteran poll workers uh, that have worked for us before. And what would you like to see state and federal government do um, to offer you and your, your staff um, more protection? Um, some of the things that we we look at um, just internally, um, we've taken advantage of some of the, the offerings from from federal sources. Uh, we've done physical examinations of our physical space, um, looking at um, cybersecurity issues and, and those types of things. Um, funding funding is big. Um, the federal government can definitely help us. Um, especially with physical security, um, with with uh, additional funding to election officials, um, that can go a yeah. long way in helping us to to shore up our our uh, our, our, our physical spaces. And, and how how are you, how concerned are you? I mean, there's a gentleman named Adam Laxalt um, who is you know running for office right now, um, who believes in the big lie. There are other people who you know are of that ilk that are trying to essentially run to be the secretary of state, to, to be in the position to decide who gets elected. How concerned are you that some of these people who are in this personality cult will actually be in charge of how these elections are administered in 2022? Well, there is some framework. Um, there is, there's only so much, um, I would say, uh, lateral movement that we can do with elections. Uh, we run them by federal and state laws. Um, could they potentially um, be cause you know havoc potentially uh, you know with most of the people that we deal with um, a lot of people are just um, in that category of having been on the receiving end of misinformation and once yeah. that we explain uh, things to them how how we really run elections how our equipment really functions um, most of them will say oh I didn't know um, but there are some out there. That just, you know, they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear um, the, anything that's different from, from what their their uh, internal dialogue is yeah. telling them. So, you know, yeah. there's only so much we can do. Um, but I think the majority of people are still open-minded and we're trying to um, combat ignorance with information. Absolutely. And I said in 2022, I meant in 2024, because this 2022 election is critical. Uh, and people need to be careful about not allowing people who are part of the big lie cult to take office and have control in any way of these elections. But Deanna Spicula, thank you very much. Stay safe. Really appreciate you. And election workers are heroes. Thank you very much. Uh, and please stick around for tonight's absolute worst because, you know what, it's no fun working without a net. In this case, a safety net. We'll be right back. right-wing hysteria over Joe Biden's handling of the economy, you'd never know that it's actually doing pretty great. A report out today shows that the economy grew 5.7% in 2021, the fastest pace since 1984. Inflation has dampened that growth, which means that many families aren't feeling the real-world effects of those good numbers. Republicans and the wealthy, and especially the super-rich, and by the way, they did gangbuster, gangbuster during the pandemic, well, they like to blame inflation on increased government spending. And yeah, pumping lots of money into the economy all at one time certainly can be inflationary. But there's something else affecting Americans' kitchen table expenses that's pretty much unique to us and might be why people are struggling right now. 
It's this country's scandalously sparse social safety net. We have a huge issue with affordable housing, now made worse by inaction, uh, by the inaction of the Senate, allowing the eviction moratorium to expire. We're the only developed country that doesn't mandate paid family and medical leave. And that, and that's co- and that has cost workers an estimated $22.5 billion in wages annually, according to Bloomberg. The CARES, the CARES Act child tax credit dramatically slashed child poverty. But thanks to Manchin and Cinema, the Senate let that expire too. And of course, the major reason we don't have a Build Back Better bill to address all of these problems is because Cinema and Manchin have played right into the conservative talking points, with Manchin claiming that it will create sky-high inflation. And once again, government spending can affect inflation, and reports show that it could happen on a moderate scale. But the bill would actually ease the effects of inflation on lower-income families, you know, the people Manchin and Cinema clearly don't care about or think that they answer to. Moody's economists note that the law is designed to ease the financial burden of inflation for lower and middle income Americans by helping with the cost of child care, elder care, education, health care and housing for these income groups. Sounds like basic rights that our country should provide and their provisions that are widely popular with the American people. But the biggest problem here is that our country and the super rich who run it do not care about easing the financial burden of lower and middle income Americans. Here's Senator Mouthwash Cures COVID, Ron Johnson, with the latest Starve the Poor right-wing argle-bargle. People decide to have families and, and uh, become parents. Uh, that's something you know, they, they need to consider uh, when they make that choice. Uh, I've never really felt it was society's responsibility uh, to take care of other people's children says the senator who supports overturning people's actual right to decide if they want to be parents or not. And his bad take isn't new. It is basically vintage Paul Ryan and Ronald Reagan, etc. And it has contributed to how poor and callous our country's social safety net is. And that is tonight's absolute worst. And that is also tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.